This is Counter Stories, a show by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Anthony Galloway, senior partner at the Dendros Group and pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota. Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I state are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. And I'm Don Eubanks, member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians and associate of Dendros Group. I'm Haley Lee, owner of The Other Media Group, VP of Programming at Ampers, and Counter Stories producer. So we're, we're coming off of an episode where we talked about grief and our uh, respective experiences. And, and in that conversation, there's also the, um, there, there's one of the things that happened and we realized that some of the times when we get together, it seems to always be around funerals or be around, you know, tragic moments. And, and we also gather... <laughs> When it's not so tragic, when there are other reasons to gather, that's not just weddings and birthings and all these kinds of things. So we wanted to take some time to talk a little bit about not just the gatherings themselves, but also um, food. One of the things that um, uh, I've been (laughs) arguing about with groups of friends of mine, and we are an interracial group of folks, is this idea of navigating around, you know, when does food no longer become yours? And what I mean by that is, you know, at one point, I at one point in my life, I felt like when folks were going to a cookout, the cookout, big air quotes, uh, in there's an in, assumption that is black folks cooking, and there's an assumption about things that are going to be on the menu at that point. And I've been to some, let's just say, gatherings that have supposed to have that feel that were put on ultimately at the end of the day by folks outside of the black community and they included some of the foods in like I'm gonna keep it 100 some of the foods that the folks made was hitting just like it was at grandma's house and it caused a whole lot of issues because now we got white folks who are cooking like black folk and it's turning out And so that was one argument that folks had. And of course, we've got experiences where other folks are like, this is black food. And other folks are like, no, no, you can't claim that. That belongs to so-and-so. And and so it got us into this whole kind of debate around how we gather, what's on the menu. Can folks still make the foods that are there? And there's this new negotiation that's happening as folks acculturate to different communities. And so I just thought it'd be fascinating to talk about how we gather what we bring to the cookout, and what are some of the nuances and complexities around what we bring to them gatherings. So I got this question for you all, Counter Stories crew. So what is it that must be at the cookout in your community? Like, what are the must-haves? And we'll start there and then keep going. Like, what are the things that when I when I come to your cookout, your set, and it's going to be authentic, what's on the menu? <laughs> My mom is making like 20 pounds of rice this weekend for a graduation party. And we I thought you were being facetious. Her. You're literally no, talking about making literally talking about rice. Sometimes that is the duty assigned <laughs> to one person is you have to make rice. And so you'd spend all morning steaming and so we sometimes we bag it uh in, in individual individual like sandwich bags or snack mm. bags. Um, to make it easier and um, it makes the line go faster. Um, so some folks like to bag their rice. And so there's the process of making the rice and then bagging the rice and then 
filling the cooler with rice, two or three coolers, and bringing it to whatever event that you're going to. The other thing we really mm. like to have, personally, me and, uh, and my family, is papaya salad. That's like almost for a sure. must-have for, for all of our gatherings. And uh, so, whatever's so, in season. Okay. And so now... I'm just gonna step in there. So, 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 if I come to your to to a gathering and the papaya salad and the the rice and those things are there, then am I at a mung gathering? It is like how do I like what is the marker that this is what I'm trying to get at? Right, like mm. if you show up to my cookout and ain't collard greens on the table, somebody's gonna be asking, "Yo, until they arrive, this ain't a black cookout." Like there's certain dishes that like. Folks will say this is a just a gathering with some food, but what's the marker to make it black? What's the marker that make this like? Oh, I know I'm at a monk cookout. Does that even exist anymore? I don't know because our our dishes change a lot and based on the season. Mm-hmm. So cucumber season, we have a lot of cucumber soup type things, cucumber drinks. Um, squash season, we have. You know, squash-based drinks, that kind of stuff. Um, different people like different versions of law. But that's like, you know, time-consuming. So depending on who wants to make it. Um, chicken wings. We always do chicken wings. Usually we uh, cater chicken wings now because it's mm. a, a long process to make. But th it's the kids' favorite. Steam rolls, mm. egg rolls. Spring rolls, you know, that kind of stuff that's easy to walk around with. Not, not steam rolls, but egg rolls is probably the easiest. Because mm -hmm. as you're cooking it, and we'll start cooking at like 7 a.m., but we won't serve until like 1 p.m. So during that mm -hmm. time, our, our kids are around, mm -hmm. you know, so they get hungry and you just roll a napkin up stick an egg roll in it and they walk around eating an egg roll. <laughs> and that's that's easy. It's uh it's it's also um like group projects. <laughs> so with with things like egg rolls, you've made all the stuffing and then there's like six people standing around rolling and frying. So it's mm -hmm. like kind of a collective type of meal um is really popular. For us. The making of the meal itself is the gathering. This is one of the things yes. that was coming up, Don, when you were talking about, man, we only seem to get together around funerals. You know, I forgot, you forget how much of the social piece of it happens in the making of the food. So, so that to me is a definite marker of the thing that makes it authentic, right? When folks, when folks is, is, is dropping, we call them dropping pies, but like, when those sweet potato pies are hitting, you don't make one pie for the whole cookout. Like there's there's a bunch, and folks get together and assembly line them bad boys. Shucking the greens becomes a thing all together. Mm -hmm. Let somebody put a, a a fish boil in there for my Louisiana family, and all of a sudden, you've got a whole lot of folks that are that are involved in the preparation of it. And to me, sometimes that's a bigger marker than the food itself, even though you know when the food is hitting because if they gather in like that you best believe the food's about to be hitting well you know we um we this the saturday there was a gathering on my mother's side of the family which is uh my mother was a sam which is uh a family name up in malax and so so uh, Mar we drove up to Isle, Minnesota, 
to join the family gathering. And so it's native. And, so, you know, th there are, I think there are a couple of, couple of dishes that always are present at native gatherings. One is fry bread. And the other is some kind of wild rice dish. There will always be wild rice, and there will always be some form of fry bread. And now beyond that, if someone happened to have, you know, had, had any deer meat, that deer meat would show up either by itself and or part of the wild rice dish. Mm -hmm. So there's always going to be some form of, of kind of, you know, wild rice and and um, and deer or some kind of, you know, something you have to hunt um, mm -hmm. that will be there. And then, but once you go, but but beyond those dishes, then it then it tends to be a combination of I think what a lot of people would be accustomed to macro some some form of of, of macaroni, cold or hot. You know, um, I think natives like a uh, macaroni and hot dog, um, but some form of of macaroni with some form of meat, either hamburger or hot dogs, um, and then just other kind of traditional dishes you're gonna see. I think everywhere else, and so, um, so the food, I, but and there was plenty of it. So, and it was the same thing. I think they started very early to mm. put that together and then we brought up we brought up dessert but more importantly it was it was just getting together with the extended family which we hadn't done in in uh quite a few years so that was very enjoyable to sit around talk tell stories um which is what we tend to do we kind of talk about things that happened in the past and and you know things that make us laugh. Uh, <laughs> the only other, I think, really interesting dynamic that happened is that um, out of all my cousins that were there, four of them had uh, have had knee replacements, <laughs> and it was interesting because both my knees are shot, and they saw me get up and gimp around and then one of them asked how my knees were and I told him I told him my you know my knees are bad then it just came out I couldn't believe there were at least three individuals all female who had their knee at least one of their knees replaced so that was a little interesting now you know that's not a native thing that's just uh <laughs> that, that's just your your joints getting older and and uh wearing out and and um and folks going in to have it done but i i found that to be an interesting aspect of a of the get together but so on that side but you know on my dad's side on my black side when i think about when I think about getting together and, and, and some of those dishes, you know, it. I think that, you know, part of part of that experience was my dad, who was black, married my mother, who was native, mm -hmm. and so I think there was a convergence of of two different types of food groups, with my dad kind of 
teaching my mom how to make some food that he was familiar mm-hmm. with growing up. So things like beans and oxtails, I remember mm-hmm. we ate a lot of. Um, but beyond that, there wasn't a lot of what I would call, I guess, traditionally black food, except for except for New Year's, New Year's Eve. My dad would put together a meal for every New Year's. It was spaghetti, greens, yep, chitlins, and cornbread. A okay. So now we now we opening up something because <laughs> again, again, there's these markers. I thought you were gonna say black eyed peas, and then I was gonna push you be like, hey, uh, a whole lot of people across the planet eat them, even though its origin is the continent of Africa. Yes, but. Uh, those, 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 that particular bean, but at those markers, like we, we, it used to, we, here's the mental process that happened. It felt like at one point we could know a gathering by its foods. And now we, 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 we were struggling to, to feel like some kind of way. And there's a couple of sets of feelings and Luz, I know we hadn't heard from you yet, but there's, there's a couple of sets of feelings that came up in this conversation. Number one, um, do we know what's ours anymore was a topic of the conversation. Two, when we started to put blend families together, you know, we we what do we claim? What do we get to claim and what's not? And three, there's almost a sense of loss because when we start to recount the recipes for them classic foods that we knew was gonna be in there, not chitlins, that one has fallen off the off the list. Uh, at least for much of the family here up north, maybe not so much down south, but it started to bring in a conversation around negotiating the things that we've lost. Do we still have auntie's recipe? Do we still have grandma's recipe for these things that, that were time consuming? They required you to interact and gather. They were the thing that held things together. And ultimately at the end, we are kind of lamenting over this fact that things just don't taste the same, not just physical taste, but the taste of the spirit of it, the taste of the gathering of it. And it began to be this interesting conversation about what do we still have? That's ours. Um, Lose what what marks uh, a, what marks the gathering as uh, a Frias family gathering. <laughs> Thanks for asking, Anthony. You know my family hails from Mexico, so my remarks are uh, related to Mexican food, um, particularly in the summer. Mm. Our food would be very different at a cookout than it would be at a gathering in in the winter, right? Very different. Uh, so for for us, it would be carne asada, which is grilled flank steak uh, over the grill. Uh, elote, which is corn, but it's just not just mm. sweet corn on the cob. It's it's done up. It's grilled with queso, which is cheese, crema, which is crema, but some people analogize it to mayonnaise, and it's not. It's it's kind of a sour cream yeah, almost, right? Yeah. But it's <laughs> unique. It's not even sour cream. Yeah. Uh, chile. Uh, so we have a chile piquín, which is a powdered chile that we sprinkle over it, uh, and then we uh, squeeze lime over it. Uh, so that's that's one of the things uh, that accompanies the. And then your basic foundational dishes of Mexican beans, pinto beans, as well as Mexican rice, and then you can't have uh, carne asada, grilled meat, without having tortillas. So you would have uh, corn tortillas, tortillas de maíz, 
Uh, and then you have to have limes to season. We use our limes to season things. Mm-hmm. And of course, you also have salsa to put on your um, your dish, on your tacos. And then, of course, guacamole. So um, all that is is really standard in a very traditional Mexican gathering in the summer. Um, and 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 of course, for those of us who are non-meat eaters like myself, who's a vegan, then we, you know, we have to be creative about what we're going to substitute <laughs> instead of the meat. Um, and it still is something that is a a point of discussion, if you will, when when I am with family and they look at me like, "That's you're wrong," you know, that you can't be Mexican and and be vegan. I mean, there's it's almost sacrilegious for my family and. They start to find fault, you know. That's why you're so thin. That's why you're this. That's what you know. And uh, and that that <laughs> those were the comments that I heard when I was a vegetarian for thirty years as well. So <laughs> there's there's a lot of uh, castigation from some folks uh, when it comes to not following our traditional food. Uh, and the only the only deviation for me in all of this is that I I don't eat the meat. I eat everything else, right? Mm-hmm. But that's enough to raised some eyebrows and some ire among my my folks. I had yeah. I had an aunt who told me one time that um, when I said, are there going to be non-meat? Can we find some non-meat options? She said, no, no, no. Okay, it's okay. There's chicken. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I had a friend who, a monk friend who married a white guy who was a vegetarian. And for the monk wedding, she told her mom, well, he's a vegetarian. She said, that's okay. So we'll just, instead of doing pork, we'll do chicken. And she's like, no, 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 no. He's a vegetarian. (laughs) You know, like it takes a minute to try to explain to them what that means. (laughs) At at my uh, kind of sort of wedding reception that my Mm -hmm. mom threw, uh, my husband's nephew showed up. Well, he was invited, but he brought with him his girlfriend who was a vegetarian. And legit, all she could eat was the rice. Because it was like everything else was covered in meat. And I was like... I it I never really quite realized that. I mean, depending on the season, again, we have uh, mixed greens, we have zucchini, you know, all sorts of other um, side dishes that are just vegetables. Uh, but we didn't at that time. It was just not the season. And so she came in. I think she was a little annoyed, although I'm like, my wedding, not yours, whatever. Um, <laughs> that all, all she could eat was rice. And uh, Luz, you know... <laughs> I think a few years ago, there was like a lime shortage and maybe our communities, our two communities were the most affected by not yeah. having limes because people, yeah. people were using lemons and papaya salad and it was like, nope, nope, nope. I can tell nope. immediately nope. Not, the not the same. And nope. with elotes, my, uh, it's become very popular and my sister bought all the stuff and we made elotes once at a family gathering and my mom was like, man, those Mexicans know how to do corn. but i wonder how you feel about um kind of more mainstream places like uh, a pizza luce that has an elote's pizza yeah yeah i mean it's bound to happen you know with that sigh hold up lose lose that sigh (laughs) 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 that sigh (laughs) what was in that sigh (laughs) that sigh is 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 a relinquishment of, you know, 
reality is reality and you can't do anything yes. about it, you know, and mm-hmm. it's, it's a commercialization of our yes. cultures. Um, uh-huh. I mean, it, I still, uh, every time I drive by a Taco Bell or, uh, <laughs> there's another, um, I'm trying to remember the other outfit. You know, I, ne- I never frequent these, these restaurants. Taco John's. Taco John's. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I bristle because I, I, you know, they're just. Um, it, it's nowhere near the quality of food that we have. Uh, nowhere near. Um, and it's offensive, quite honestly, to my taste buds uh, to think that that's what they're promoting as, quote unquote, Mexican food or even Tex-Mex, you know, uh, mm-hmm. food. Um, but it is what it is, you know, and, and I know uh, in terms of my circles, I mean, folks all feel the same. It's like, you know, I have to be on my last leg in terms of food availability to think that I'm going to frequent any <laughs> one of those places. Like, it's, it's just not going to happen. You know, you won't see me there because uh, it's not real food. It's, it's not our food. You know, Luz, you you bring up in that it's not your food, and I tie that to a, a theme that Anthony brought up in terms of what's changed through the years. And when I and you know everyone's talked about, Haliz brought this up, Anthony, you brought it up, and when I think back to when I was younger. Um, many of the women would start cooking very early in the morning and it would be like a all morning thing in order for us to eat by one, two, three o'clock in the afternoon, whether we were at a house or at a gathering. But one, I know there is one difference that I've seen through the years and, and that is then back then my aunts, <clears throat> my cousins and my mother they were cooking from scratch. Mm. And I don't see that as much anymore. Now, it might just be in my small circle, but when you can reach in the cupboard and just pull out a box and throw it in, you know, throw it in a skillet or, you know, everything's kind of pre pre prepared. And you're just heating it up, kind of. You know what I mean? It, it's it's not the same um, putting a meal together. It's mm-hmm. just, it's not the same. And so <clears throat> I think that I've seen, and I've seen that a lot. I mean, it's just the world we live in now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, the food isn't the same. It doesn't taste the same. It it just it doesn't come out the same, um, and I think that's part of it. And um, and I think you know I'm still wrapping my head around about what's ours because mm. you know I I'm not food is food. I think I think there's differences and variances mm-hmm. of how it's put together and what's prepared, um, but. You know, when I think of traditionally what I would think of what would be black food, I often struggle because so much of that reminds me of Southern food. I mean, when I go down south, I feel like I've hit the jackpot. And that's even going to a fat, going to a, a buffet. And, you know, I've, 
was there, at there's a something different from OCB oh, to um, I mean um, even in Kansas Golden City Corral down south versus well, Golden Corral up here yeah you can <laughs> go to a buffet in Kansas City and they got peach cobbler on the and you know and 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 the choices just you know so so we made it once we I discovered this place Every time we were in Kansas City, we made a point, you know, we would go to this this buffet first, then we'd go to Arthur Bryant's, right? Then we go get some ribs, but we would go hit that ba- <laughs> uh, buffet first because that had everything. You know, and, and the point that you've made, Don, about cooking from scratch, you're right. I mean, there are folks within my family, extended family, who will open up a can of pinto beans, put them in the stove, season them up, and that's it. And I just had this conversation last weekend with a family member. And, um, you know, I said, no, I I still make my beans from scratch. Um, And it's easier because if you use it in an Instant Pot, you know, a pressure cooker, you could actually get it done in in less than an hour. You have to soak the beans, of course, before, uh, whether they're Cuban beans or pinto beans. uh, But I... My rice, everything that I make is all from scratch. You know, the pre-made stuff, uh, whether it's in a box or a can, there are concessions that you have to make in terms of sodium intake, right? And quality mm-hmm. uh, and exposure to chemicals and things of that sort. Uh, so we, in our household, we choose not to. And uh, all my stuff is is still authentic and from scratch. Uh, so kind of old school. Well, my mom used to make her own tofu, like from um, soybeans. Wow. Oh, wow. She would like, yeah. And then at some point with eight kids, right? And then at some point Mm -hmm. she was like, screw this. And started (laughs) buying tofu, you know. Mm -hmm. But I I don't consider her changing the way she made it to be less authentic. It's kind of like this evolution of how we make our food or where we source our food based on where we are now. You know, we didn't have those sorts of resources in the old country. You can go to the market and get a thing of tofu, a block of tofu for five bucks or whatever. You know, you had, if you wanted tofu, you had to make it out of scratch. There were no other options. Mm. Where now in the U.S., there's this convenience that, you know, you can buy it. Yes, it might be um, a Chinese company, right, or from uh, made by different Asian groups, but it's still, you know, when she brings it home, she still uses it in our dishes. So, um, yeah, I there's this kind of evolution. I don't know if it's I should call it evolution of, of the foods that we make, and especially when it comes to commercialization, so, like, right now, I think um, uh, Sean Sherman, who uh, has O'Omni restaurant, and Ya Vang, who does a lot of uh, Union Kitchen among uh, restaurants and pop-ups, mm-hmm. they're getting a lot of attention right now, right, for the work that they're doing in trying to um, keep the food authentic. Um, mm-hmm. Ya does a lot of fusion stuff where he adds different mm-hmm. things. He made a, a burger, uh, we don't mm-hmm. eat burgers, although this past weekend I did see my nephew eating a burger with rice on the side. Um, <laughs> and But then there was some some folks in community who were like, you know, yes, just making all the stuff my mom, our moms made. Why is he why is he getting all this attention? 
you know, he's on TV now. He's got, you know, a podcast. He's got a show. He's doing these national competitions, but he's using the basis of everything that we grew up eating. And so Mm. then there's this kind of like, we should be happy for him. But at the same time, like our moms and grandmas have been doing this forever and they uh, have, you know, it's just natural for them and they haven't gotten any uh, recognition for it. Mm. And that's a little bit of a conversation that's been going on in our community with his popularity as it starts to grow. And it's, it's, this is where our conversation that kind of, that, that kind of sparked this idea started to go off into these different places because food is never just food. You know, it's, it's not just a, a, a marker of culture at one point, but then that culture shifts and moves. How do we, you know, uh, the instant pot has taken a three to four hour endeavor on the stovetop for collard greens and turned it into a one hour experience. That may not taste exactly, to your point, Don, like grandma's tasted, but it doesn't taste different enough to to throw out that Instant Pot and go back. You know what I mean? And so now, and and, and other folks are are now starting to grow and, and, and start to make food. Not talking about Taco Bell by any means loose, just... This is, I'm not I'm not used making this comparison, <laughs> right? But we got some folks who are outside of community that are starting to make some things from my community as good, if not better, than some of the folks in my own community, and and that makes you feel a kind of way, um, mm-hmm. you know, because as we live in this kind of acculturative space, some folks are starting to get some things right. I never forget showing a, a white friend of mine how to make my black eyed peas, and and damn it. They came back tasting real familiar. <laughs> and I expected there to be more of a difference in there. And so and so I then come back to start to looking at, okay, what's a marker? Because now they're, they're asked to bring those beans every single time they go to a, their own family thing, can cook out. And I wonder how many of those conversations come back to the black folks that we learned to make them from. And, and so... <clears throat> You know, it starts as simple as surfacy as food, but it gets us into a conversation about what do we get to call authentically ours, whether it's the space and how we gather. Like, you come to the cookout where I'm at, it's going to be loud. Like, there's not going to be... You ain't going to politely <laughs> yeah. get into a conversation. You're going to either be pulled into a conversation or you're going to have to kick your way into a conversation and just be there. And that's not the same as everybody's gathering. Like, there's, there's mm-hmm. food that marks... What, what an authentic gathering is, but then there's also the subject matter. And so I'm, I'm, I'm curious, you know, on that, on that, on that question, there's some, some things that are morphing over time related to food. Yes. But related to how we gather, and I'm just curious what some of those things that you're navigating are, what are some of the, what are some of the things that are starting to become ubiquitous or that folks are taking too much Liberty with, um, or, or, you know, maybe they're just, appreciating and you feel some kind of way because it doesn't seem like we're, we're gathering the same way. So I'm just, I'm just curious about your navigation between as other folks pick up, not just your food culture, but other markers and elements that, you know, not appropriation. I'm talking about like just your everyday, like I roll up to spots and there's a lot day all the time. How am I going to know what's authentic a lot day and what's not? Some of the dopest ramen places in the area don't have any connection to Japan <laughs> and it's still really good ramen. 
So there used to be a restaurant on the east side, and it's, it's gone through a couple changes, Cook St. Paul, and it was run by a white guy. It was Korean fusion food and a lot of Korean food. He had trained under a Korean chef, mm. and his wife was Korean. And so a lot of the times people would come in expecting that, you know, it was a Korean chef. And he was always very open when people mm-hmm. would like, oh, we want to do a feature on your restaurant because of this, you know, popular Korean fusion and how you, you know, and all this stuff. Because there just weren't, at that time, there weren't a lot of Korean places on, in St. Paul. And so he was getting all this attention. And he was very upfront with everybody saying, uh, you can feature the restaurant, but you need to make it clear that I am not Korean. And I understand that this um, may confuse people or may rub people the wrong way. Um, that I make Korean food. I've made Korean fusion food. So kind of mixing American food with Korean food. Um, but that he did that out of learning from his wife and training under a Korean chef for like five years. Um, and so I think, you know, in the way that he made sure that it was recognized and it was understood publicly, that even though he's the chef, he uh, runs the place, he owns the place, that he himself is not of the culture that the food that he was making. And I, I really appreciated that. And I appreciated that on the days when they weren't um, open, he would allow other API chefs to use his kitchen as a pop-up. So there were a lot of pop-ups that happened for chefs who wanted to try different restaurant or different recipes, uh, chefs who just wanted to see if like, should I quit my IT job and become a chef like I've always dreamt, you know? And so maybe they spent a weekend um, at this restaurant having, you know, doing it by themselves. And so I think when you are at least able to recognize and acknowledge and make sure other folks um, know that, that, you know, you are inspired by and you have been taught by, but that you yourself aren't, I think that makes a big difference in the respect, I mean, for me, in the respect that I give to that um, that restaurant or that chef. Along those lines, there are also folks who do it out of necessity. You know, I've been in many restaurants, Ethiopian restaurants, Chinese restaurants, uh, Italian restaurants, like not chains, actual family-owned mm-hmm. And when they open the the door to the kitchen, you hear Spanish being spoken among all the workers, right? So the chefs then are Spanish speaking, they're Latinos. I don't know their origin, ethnicity, if they're Mexican, you know, South American, Central American, whatever. But suffice it to say that there's a lot of Spanish coming out of an Ethiopian kitchen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and And it's because that's where the jobs are. Right. Mm-hmm. And being able then to be in a, in, in, in a position where you're making a living and you're learning something new and you're expanding your repertoire at the same time. Uh, and I, I have a lot of respect for folks that way, both on both sides, the, the chefs, certainly that are who are putting themselves in that position, but also the establishments thinking outside the box. Right. You don't have to be Ethiopian to work in an Ethiopian establishment as long as you learn the dishes authentically and cook and follow uh, the recipes authentically, then then that's okay. Uh, but I've seen that over the course of my lifetime and mo- most recently in the last uh, year as well, where 
that's, uh, that's pretty prevalent. And I, I love that you said that because there's, again, just like in our appropriation conversations, right? There's this line that, you know, doesn't have clear markers, but, but you can, you can get a sense if somebody is, 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 I don't know, being 100 <laughs> with the the cultural cuisine that we've come to f- call home. This comes up a lot in my friend's circles because many of the folks in that circle are in multiracial relationships and are navigating a whole lot of different things beyond just food. But food often becomes one of those markers. Like, like what as the couple's you know cultures come together and began to no- navigate this food space, you know, new foods start coming to the table. And I- I'll never forget. Um, you know, we're scratch folks too, especially we go hard with the meats. So (laughs) I'm up at four o'clock in the morning prepping a grill to smoke something all day long, whether it be beef, whether it be chicken or any of those things, whether it be fish. That's another thing folks will say if you're vegetarian and you come around, folks will go, okay, we've got fish. (laughs) <laughs> because so many of the folks who are vegetarian are actually technically more pescatarian in our family space. And so there's this internal thing of, oh, we've got fish for the vegetarians. Oh, well, hold on, wait. So, um, but as we're as we're attending to all of that, I think one of the things that that we we saw happening is as as folks acculturate, folks start getting good at making foods outside of their cultural norm that gives you a little bit of pause. Like I got self-conscious the first time my friend's wife, who's white, made some black eyed peas for the New Year's and they were hands down better than mine. I mean, I I I brought my grandmother a little bit and she looked at me and she was like, she like, like you done failed because <laughs> you got somebody outside a community who's making stuff like that like you supposed to be at this level. What's wrong with you? Right. I, I felt some kind of way. Right. Cause there has been a passing of some torches in that regard. And it's more than just the food, right. It's, it's all the things that go along with it. And so I'm curious as we, you know, we come kind of to the end of this conversation, what seems surfacy enough of food carries with it all of these different stories. Like I have one aunt who's not allowed to cook when a family gets together. They hand her some Kool-Aid mix <laughs> and that's your that's your lane. And it's not because she can't cook, but somewhere along the line, she violated something around the food and now has this job forever and a day, even though she can I've had her cooking. She she can she can cook a little bit, but she messed up <laughs> coming in and acculturating and now gets handed Kool-Aid whenever it's everybody gets together and it's a running joke. So I'm just curious, you know, as as things move and more for you, what are, what are some of the ways in which you're navigating the ways that our communities and our families are changing? You know, when Lou said um, that, like, restaurants do it out of necessity, mm-hmm. the first thing I thought of was they had to add things to their menu that is not authentic out of necessity to stay in business. Mm. Right. So there are some things that I've noticed, especially like at Chinese restaurants, things that are Americanized foods um, that they have on the menu that um, you you go to China, you probably wouldn't see, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but they did it out of the necessity of staying in business. Um, And and it kind of it's like so like when my husband and I eat out, if we choose an Asian restaurant, I have to make sure that there's stuff on the menu that he would like. Um, that's mm. Americanized Asian food. 
Um, but there was one year, you know, the way that uh, Hmong people eat squash a lot, especially for our older folks, is that we boil it and it becomes kind of, um, it becomes more of a drink. You can drink it and then mm. you can eat the bits of squash because it's soft. Uh, and my husband loves butternut squash soup. And so he got a squash from my mom from her garden and he came home and he made the soup the way like American people eat it. Um, and he presented it to my grandma who really, really liked it and was like, oh, like this was a new way for her to experience it, you know. Mm. And my dad, who like doesn't have good teeth, was like, oh, like, you know, this is some a, a plant that we grew from our garden that we eat all the time. But he took it and he showed us a different way, a different possibility of eating it. And so I thought that was like just a really great cross-cultural moment of, mm. you know, usually I'm trying to introduce him to new foods. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he like, when we first got married, he gave me the cookbook that came from his Presbyterian church in Duluth, like the church cookbook, which was, I don't know, okay, and hard for me to, to follow, but um, had a lot of the same types of recipe type, type of things. Uh, a lot of butter and cheese. There was just a lot of cheese and being uh, <laughs> lactose intolerant, that was hard. Um, but so I'm always trying to introduce him to, you know, different foods. Or the I appreciate foods you how, how you navigated that right there, <laughs> Lee. You were real, real polite. Uh, <laughs> real polite. <laughs> Uh, so it was, I thought that was just like a sweet kind of cross-cultural moment that I would share. You know, it, it's, it's funny. We, we, we will start talking about food and then realize there's so many other pieces and layers to, to, to this. And, and one of the things that always comes with, um, just the food and this navigation of what's ours, what's not, what's, what are we willing to kind of acculturate and allow for the world and what still remains as ours that a person's still going to assume that I'm going to have more authentic than, than elsewhere. Um, is this, this invariable experience of seeing somebody else rant and rave about something that's meh, that's a good knockoff of, you know, attempt of what you would get at home. And so I'm curious, you know, and, and again, I keep using food as, as this, but I, I encounter this a lot in music as well where somebody will rant and rave about some blues artist or some jazz artist or 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 some 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 gospel artist. I'm seeing TikToks with white choirs singing gospel music and they they are sounding real good. It ain't the root. It ain't what you get in the real pure authentic space, but it's daggone good. I, I I will never forget listening to a, a a video of a choir. I swore was a black choir, only to find out that it was a Korean choir. Because look, you want to have some folks who get closest to to black gospel tradition. I'm sorry, there's some Korean choirs that are outdoing folks <laughs> in the United States who have proximity and access to the same gospel choirs that we're trying to emulate. And so, you know, even beyond food, there's this navigation of where the cultural lines are. And so as we as we wrap up, I mean, what is something that no matter where you've had it, no matter who's tried to recreate it, ain't nothing like mama, auntie, uncles in community, ain't it'll never taste like somebody in home community making. What is that dish for you, regardless of whether it comes from your culture or not? I'm just curious. 
what that dish that no, there is no other substitute. The only person who can make it this way is so-and-so. I'm wondering what that dish is for you. Tamales. Tamales. <laughs> yeah. Tamales. No matter who, you know, restaurants, uh, there's one outfit in, in, in town, La Loma, that does a, a nice job. But, um, you know, when you got Costco selling tamales <laughs> and you've got some <laughs> of these other establishments, it, it just, um, I, I don't even bother. Um, mm. Not even go, not a good, not even going to experiment if it ain't from. I'm gonna save my certain money. folks' hands. Save my money. <laughs> what about but tamales? Other folks? Is, is a lot of work. A tamales is a lot of work to make. I made it once with the yeah. family, and I was like, "Oh my god, I'm yeah. exhausted." Yeah, that's why they take so good. There's a lot of love that goes into it. A lot of love. I just buy it from back of the car and El Burrito's parking lot. There you go. Mm. Back of someone's car in El Burrito's parking lot. Um, for me, like a lot of the Hmong food, um, you'll find different variations in Thailand, in Laos, in Cambodia. Um, mm. So like our pho, you know, pho is something that is universal to Asia. Mm. Vietnamese do it differently than the Thai do it. You know, a lot of the times if you go to like um, Hmong town or um, Hmong market, um, you will see that... Um, they offer different options for papaya. Um, so there's like a Thai version or a Lao version. Um, but one thing that nobody else makes, whether they're Hmong or not, that I do not um, like, uh, aside from my mom's, are the egg rolls. My mom's egg rolls and my sister's sauce. Like my husband loves eating egg rolls and he'll order it from restaurants all the time. And I never order it from restaurants ever. Like, I'm like, I'm not going to waste my money. I'm not going to waste that food because I know I'm not going to eat it because it's not going to be as good as my mom's and the sauce is not going to be as good as my sister's. And so I just don't, I don't order it because I know I'm not going to eat it. Mm. And mine very quickly is fry bread. They're my great aunt uh, and probably, and I think what it is is I grew up eating my great aunt's fry bread, and while the ingredients remain the same, it's how they're put together in the quantities that vary between folks who make fry bread. So finding someone who makes good fry bread in our community is kind of a hit and miss thing. And so even at you know, even at our get together, there were two two different fry breads, and you could taste the difference immediately mm. between the two. You know, for 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 me, um, and as we as we wrap up, it is sweet potato pie. Um, you know, every single piece of, and you can see this in the documentary or, or in the in the show Afro Culinaria. But there are stories that go along with all of these different foods that mark them beyond just the taste. And for me, don't nobody make sweet potato pie like grandma's sweet potato pie, auntie's sweet potato pie. There's just something about that. Um, and it connects directly with the um, fact that, especially during um, slavery times, you know, you could get a raw sweet potato and put it in your pocket and eat it raw in the field, which was a common practice for some sustenance. And it's not good. 
it is necessity to survival. But in this, to sit and mash and 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 make that pie, I, I like Rose McGee's quote: "It is the sacred dessert of our culture." And there's something about that that just gives you warm. It's not pumpkin. It's not pumpkin. There ain't nothing pumpkin about it. Um, ain't no comparison for me. But that's the food for me. Listen, I thank you all for going down this this kind of lighter road. But I think, you know, if we can talk about just the foods and negotiating around that, it opens the door to so many other little nuanced things that we all have to contend with in a space that's starting to get familiar with some of our cultural spaces. And sometimes it goes well, and sometimes they turn it into a cereal for Cinco de Mayo that ain't got nothing to do with Cinco de Mayo and Halloween or Dia de los Muertos and all of that. Um, so <laughs> we've, we've got a double-edged sword here. We've got some mixture of appreciation and acculturation and folks who just take the surface elements of the food and not all the deep soul that comes along with it. Thank you all for joining us for this conversation. I'm Anthony Galloway, senior partner at the Dendros Group and pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions I've stated are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. And I'm Don Eubanks, member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians and associate of Dendros Group. I'm Holly Lee, owner of the Other Media Group, VP of Programming at Ampers, and Counter Stories producer. Thank you all for listening. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com.